Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. Rachel, I'm finally feeling like 60 or 70% now for the first time in almost a month. How are you doing? I'm exhausted. I mean, oh, just, you know, summertime with just like so much going on, but I'm like pretty jacked about this podcast because I'm sure you will be very happy with all of the trades that we're going to talk about and not have anything bad to say about any of them. Or about signings for, you know, a 56-point winger who signed a one-year, $1 million contract as if he were a replacement-level player. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, no, can't wait. I mean, I'm glad that you're at about, like, 60 to 70%. So if it was the playoffs, like, you could step in and probably play, like, probably like a third-line role, which is, you know, it's useful. And I mean, Zach Hyman played on a torn ACL. Bergeron played with a punctured lung. That was literally what... the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, what are you doing playing with a punctured lung? You could die. I mean, Kevin Durant was playing with a, a, a torn Achilles? I don't know. They never That's pulled. even, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, let's move on to hockey. So what are we going to be talking about today, Rachel? Well, we said last week that we were going to hit on all the trades that happened. So I think, um, I'll just list the trades that we'll talk about and then you can pick which trade we start with. We're going to start with the one that happened today as we're recording this, I think. But, uh, yeah, all right, go, go list off the trades now. All right. So we got Yoki Haru for Nylander. Alex Nyland. <laughs> Alex, not William. Uh, both Leafs trades, so that's the trade with Ottawa and the trade with Colorado. The Phil Kessel, Arizona deal, the Colin Miller deal, and the Eric Holla deal. Where would you like to take this? Because I'm tempted to go with the the recent one, which was the Yoki Haru Nylander one. I feel like that's fresh on everyone's mind, so how about we do that first, and then we'll see what we feel like talking about next. So for anyone who doesn't know, who's Henry Yoki Haru? And let's be real, who's Alex Nylander? Because he hasn't really done anything since his draft year. Honestly, I feel like had the Blackhawks drafted Byram, just having him and Yoki Haru as their pairing, that would have literally been their pairing for the future, and they wouldn't even have had to think about it. But essentially, Henry Yoki Haru is like this. He's a Finnish defenseman. He played really well at the World Juniors. He, I think his numbers are a bit overblown from last season, but he was really good by like a bunch of super important defensive metrics i mean zone exits puck moving ability he's right-handed he was 19 last year um shot contribution of the primary sort it's funny you know who he reminds me a lot of he reminds me of eric gustafson on chicago who started off lower in the lineup and worked his way up and did really well kind of reminds me of michael kempney in chicago who started off low did everything right worked his way up the lineup to me i feel like he could easily be a top four defenseman next year. I could see him being a number four at age 20. So at age 22, 23, 24, could he be a number two? I mean, he's a guy who I think has a lot of upside. I don't understand this in any way from Chicago's perspective. And it's funny, I was looking on hockey Twitter, trying to find the other side of the coin on this one. Because I'm like, okay, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's an injury here. Maybe there is some situation going on with the player or the agent. Maybe Alex Nylander did something. No, I just, this doesn't make any sense to me. Can you play devil's advocate and try to make an argument on on behalf of Chicago here? Because I don't really know what they're thinking. Honestly, given the situation... No, but had they drafted Byram, I could have I could have sat back and said, okay, like they they view him as their number one defenseman, and they want to get forward depth. But for me, there's like Yogi Haru was playing so well, and he's on an ELC on a team that has the Seabrook contract, which is not good, and that's being super polite. It's the worst contract in the NHL. It still has five years left on it. And then you have Kane and Taves who are playing at least well still, but. Oh my god, like you have a young defenseman who's playing well and he's on his ELC. Like you need that to do anything. So I just I don't understand why you would trade a player who has proven that he can play in the NHL. Like whether you think his numbers are overblown or not, he's at least proven he's going to play in the NHL. Nylander, Alex hasn't. So I don't quite know what's going on there. <laughs> Hypothetically, let's say that you you decide that you're going to trade 
this young right-handed defenseman, 20 years old, proven ability to play in the NHL, did excellent at the World Juniors, you know, pedigree, all that. You're telling me you can't get more from him than than a guy who hasn't even produced at the AHL level? I mean... Let me ask you something, Ian, because you're a Leafs fan. Would you give up a guy like Kasperi Kapanen if, if, if in a one-for-one for Yoki Haru? Because I would. Tur- I, th- I, th- I was going to say, if I'm Toronto, I would. If I'm a team who has, you know, defensive depth, I wouldn't because I'm really high on Kapanen. But yeah, I think if I'm Toronto, I would because right. you have tons of winger depth. In theory, someone like Jeremy Bracco could come in and play on the third line there in a sheltered role. And now you have a young right-handed defenseman who kind of reminds me of Travis Dermott. He's just right-handed, you know, and I feel like if you move him up the lineup as he enters his prime, he's going to be really good. I don't know. I guess we should move on from this because there's not really any discussion here. We're just kind of talking about how bad we think this trade is for for Chicago. But if I want to go the other way on it, Buffalo's had a really good offseason. Oh, man, have they ever. Like, all of a sudden, they have three right-handed defensemen who are better than Rasmus Ristolainen. <laughs> yep. Yep. I was going to say, I don't even think that's an exaggeration at this point. They had Brandon Montour, they added at the deadline. They had Colin Miller, who they picked up basically for free. And then they just added this 20-year-old right-handed defenseman who has tons of upside. So I really like what they're doing. The, the Leafs fan of me doesn't, but man, all of a sudden that blue line looks like it has some, some upside, some puck moving ability. I like what they're doing. Well, and they, the president of the Marcus Johansson fan club, a.k.a. me, like he's going to play in Buffalo. And if he actually gets a shot to play with some really good players, like he could be really good there. That could be a solid fit for him. We have the president of the Marcus Johansson fan club and the president of the Colin Miller fan club on the podcast. So, uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're liking Buffalo's offseason. Should we jump to the Colin Miller trade real quick or no? Yeah, let's... Uh, so Colin Miller went for... He went for a haul, baby. He went for... <laughs> a second round pick and a fifth round pick and where Ian texted me going, what the hell? Uh, so I may or may not have wanted uh, the team that I cheer for to have traded for Colin Miller. Who's to say? Not a divisional rival, you say? Not sure. You'd have to check my tweet history on that one. But the reason I really like Colin Miller is because whenever he's on the ice and you adjust for all the context using whatever method you use, he's dominant. Now, is he going to be dominant in a second pairing role? Obviously not, but I think he can do well in a second pairing role. When we look at def- defensemen who struggle in top pairing minutes and we reduce their competition they tend not to do as well as you think they're going to do because quality of teammates and quality of competition are often strongly correlated as you move down the lineup yeah you're going to face easier competition but you're going to play with worse line mates so I I don't think where you play in the lineup is as big of a deal as people tend to think it is so Colin Miller if you play him on the second pairing with a half decent defenseman you give him some top six forwards or middle six forwards to play with I think he can drive plays and excellent puck mover incredible puck mover pretty good gap control for a guy with his speed yeah he's not the greatest in his defensive zone but he does so many good things to help get the puck up the ice that he doesn't spend much time in his defensive zone so the fact that he was available for a second and a fifth I think is a joke I know obviously Vegas they were capped out because of the Mark Stone trade from last year and then they signed him to a big extension that kicked in the year afterwards and then they just recently signed uh, William Carlson to a really team friendly deal that was a yeah that was a super team friendly deal he did not need to take that that little money he could have got a lot more in the open market but yeah Vegas was in a situation where they needed to shed salary it was it was obvious to everyone and their mother that uh, that Colin Miller was going to be the guy who was shipped out and yeah I, I don't know how other teams didn't offer more for him but but good on Buffalo for picking up what I think is at least a number four defenseman on a nice contract for the next couple of years. I really like Colin Miller. Well, and even if you don't think he's a number four, right, you can alternate him and Yoki Haru in that, like they can play even minutes kind of thing, right? So you have like a four or five for both of them. And that helps develop Yoki Haru that will give Colin Miller some added responsibility. Like, I don't think you need to have a top four and, a, and your bottom two. I think those two can kind of swing back and forth depending on, whether it's matchup or who's playing better at the time or elevated roles. I think that it could be a pretty good combo for Buffalo moving forward. And it also makes Ristolainen expendable, which I'm curious to see what they do with that because... He's going to Edmonton. He has to, right? Yo, that Jason Greger tweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> it just it makes so much sense. It's the Taylor Hall trade 2.0. Could you imagine if it was for Ristolainen and not a Larson? 
So, so what do you think it's going to be? Like Ryan Nugent Hopkins for for Ristolainen? Like, what what's the trade that's going to happen? Ooh, we have to we have to speak it into existence here. Oh, I don't know. See, they're going to get Ristolainen. They have Broberg coming, it's, so it's going to be for a forward. It could be for Darnell Nurse. I was going to say like. He was rumored to have been in trade talks this summer. Yeah, it could be Nurse. It, I could also see it being Clefbaum. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. All right, uh, enough with the hypothetical trades. Let's move on to uh, a good one. Should we dive into the Toronto ones? I know it's funny. We try to avoid talking about Toronto on this podcast when we can because we're both obviously in the GTA and we try to make this more of a league-wide podcast. But but they literally made the two biggest trades of the week. Like... Okay, I don't I don't think Cody Cece for Zaitsev is the biggest trade of the <laughs> No, but in terms of like what it allows them to do, in terms of like number of players and num- cap space moving and players moving, you know what I mean. Can we start with the with the Kadri Barry Kerfoot trade because I want to keep my sanity for at least another five minutes. I mean, I was gonna make you start with a go in chronological order because I feel like they it kind of has to do with that. But sure, we can start with the Colorado Toronto trade. So what was the trade, Ian? All right. Uh... It's funny, there are all the little pieces in it that I tend to forget, but luckily you have it written down here for me. So, going to Colorado was, basically the main pieces were Kadri for Barry and Kerfoot, but the other pieces that were thrown in there, Kadri, Callie Rosen, and a third round pick for Barry, Kerfoot, and a sixth round pick. So, it's funny, I know people are going to say, oh, Callie Rosen, that's, that's, that's basically nothing, but hey, he was penciled in to be Toronto's third pairing left-handed defenseman, so that has some value. What this really comes down to is the Leafs are downgrading at center from Kadri to Kerfoot, and and yes, that is a downgrade. I don't like Kadri's really good, and they're hoping that they can get a cheaper replacement. The, the way that Arvind uh, from Pension Plan Pub has described it to me, if you can get eighty percent of Kadri's value for seventy five percent of his price, then Kerfoot can provide value for you, and then you're basically getting Tyson Berry for one year on a ridiculously cheap contract because Colorado ate half of it. And then you have to decide whether or not you're going to keep Barry moving forward. But I love this trade for Colorado. I think it makes complete sense for them. And I definitely understand it from Toronto's perspective. Although I think there's an argument to be made that it helps Toronto way more in year one than it's going to help them in years two and three. And I'm not sure if I'm a huge fan of that, considering the the young elite talent you have on your roster. I'm not sure if you need to make a big swing for one year kind of trade like this. You see, the thing is, I, I think I might be a lot higher on Kerfoot than some other people. Um, I know people in the Leafs organization are really high on Kerfoot. I don't know if he's going to play center to start. It wouldn't shock me. But the thing I liked the most about this trade was it helped both teams. So Colorado's position of strength is their D um, because they have four young defensemen that are going to be like insanely good. And Toronto has the position of strength, which is at center. And that was a position of weakness in Colorado. So now Colorado's one-two punch is McKinnon, who is, he, he's in a league of zone. Arguably the best asset in the NHL at his contract. Uh, I would agree. And then you have Kadri at number two, right? And now when you switch it over to the Leafs, they lose their Kadri at two, but they still, their one-two punch is Tavares Matthews, which you could make the argument that's like a top kind of center pair in, in the Eastern Conference, if not in the NHL. And they add to their weakness, which is the right-handed defenseman, Tyson Berry. Um, how annoyed are you going to be when Mike Babcock doesn't play Berry with Morgan Riley and he plays him with Jake Muzzin and sticks Riley with CeCe? Well, CeCe is another conversation for another day, but it's funny. I, I actually like the fit of Muzzin and Berry together because I feel like Riley and Berry are, in a lot of ways, a very similar player in that they have the puck on their sticks a lot. They jump up into the rush almost every single time. They're like a fourth forward on the ice, kind of like Roman Yossi, kind of like uh, a John Klingberg. They love getting up into the play and, and trying to create offense. So I'm wondering if it might make more sense for Riley to play on his pairing and be kind of the guy when it comes to jumping into the play offensively and Tyson Berry kind of being the guy on his pairing and he'll have Jake Muzzin to look out for him defensively. Luckily, Riley's going to have Cody Cece to look out for him defensively and we're going to talk about that. But uh, when it comes to Tyson Berry 
What are your thoughts on him? Because I know that we have a lot of people listening to us who are big into analytics. And the 5-on-5 metrics, whether you're looking at something like Evolving Wild's RAPM or Micah Blake McCurdy's Isolated Threat, they don't like Barry. They tend to see Barry as like a number four defenseman at 5-on-5. I tried to write an article where I I tried to explain why that was the case and why some people see him as more of a number two and how the reality might be somewhere in the middle. But what are your thoughts on Tyson Barry? Because he's kind of a divisive player on hockey Twitter. The thing with me is I don't look at it as like, okay, these are stats, like this is where you should play. The bottom line is if you think that Tyson Berry wasn't better than any single right-handed defenseman that Toronto played last year, you're out of your mind. Like, let's just go through yes or no. Is Tyson Berry better than Nikita Zaitsev? Ooh, it's a tough one. Right. We're going to go with yes on that one. Is Tyson Berry better than Ron Hainsey? Oh, another tough one. Who is Tyson Berry better than Travis Dermott? No. no okay, no, well, um. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So whether or not you think he's as good as other people think he is, the bottom line is Toronto improved on their right-handed side and they're already a good team. He had a position of need, which is right-handed defenseman, and they got better. Now, if they would have acquired Yoki Haru, that probably would have been good, too. And much cheaper. But any way you slice it, in my mind, I think the Leafs are going to be best suited by, one, probably bringing Jake Gardner back and um, rolling with pairings of, let's say hypothetically they do that, rolling with pairings of Muzzin and Barry and then Riley Gardner because everyone knows the Riley Gardner pairing works. It's Gardner-Riley, technically, because Gardner's the one who plays his, his left side, but yeah. Right. Um, left. I think... I'm such a loser. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a nerd, oh my god. Um, I think with Barry, a lot of it is kind of overblown. Um, and he did get some pretty tough competition, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I remember looking at some, like... Uh, sport logic stats and he's getting some pretty tough ice time being put in some pretty tough situations I mean, the, the aggression models do try to account for that right and they do i'm not saying that they don't but i'm just saying he's an upgrade on and i'm not talking a little upgrade he's a significant upgrade on anyone they had on the right pair last like on the right side last season that doesn't sound like a like a like a huge endorsement of the player of the hey guess what he's better than ron hainsey and nikita zaitsev yeah it's but like, he also so- sounds like you're trying to pump up cody cc to me right now <laughs> I, no, I will not be doing that. I will let you take that one all on your own. But I think with Barry, like he brings some offense, so it's not going to be just in the event that Gardner doesn't come back. It's not going to be just Riley that they're going to depend on. There's going to be another weapon. I think the thing with Barry was in Colorado, if McKinnon, Rantanen, and Landeskog weren't on the ice, there wasn't a whole lot of forwards that you could depend on to be like the transition forwards. Where if you look at Toronto's lineup, and I said the same thing with CeCe, is as long as Dave Haxall just says your job is to retrieve the puck and get it to the, like, the forwards. Make a 10-foot pass to the winger on the wall or the center who swoops down underneath. Like, don't try to do anything too hard. Yeah. I don't want to see no stretch passes. I don't want to see any of that nonsense. Just make the simple 10-foot pass and let the forwards handle it. Because when you look at the players in transition, and you could probably speak to this better than I can, William Nylander is a damn god in transition. Mitch Marner, if he signs, is another one. Austin Matthews. Then you have Kasperi Kapanen with speed. John Tavares is really underrated when it comes to his short passing ability underneath. He gets out of the defensive zone with short little passes. Like Sometimes they're like little behind-the-back back, backhand saucer passes where he doesn't even see the winger and he just passes it into space. So good at it. You don't realize it when you're watching it, but when you track it, you go, oh my god, Tavares had five zone exits tonight. How did he do that? So I think with Barry, he's not going to be... Any defenseman that comes to Toronto, realistically, if you're playing properly, you shouldn't need to have a bunch of controlled zone exits where you physically are carrying the puck because it shouldn't be your job that's not the strength of the team the strength of the team is up front so I think with Barry they're going to change his role a bit and they're going to change it towards his strengths and that's why I think he'll actually show better in Toronto I agree I I think when you get him into space and transition he's going to make a lot happen real quick uh, Kerfoot I wrote an article about him recently breaking down a lot of the reasons why Toronto would love him when it comes to his ability to move the puck up the ice with possession, some of his fantastic passing numbers, and how that might not have shown itself well in Colorado because 
he was playing with Tyson Yost and Colin Wilson, and then previous years, Nail Yakupov and, and some not great names. So playing in a line with Kasperi Kapanen could be a lot of fun. Do you think Kerfoot plays more games at center this year or more games on the wing? Uh, if the Leafs do not man- make any acquisitions, I think he plays more at center um, because you know mu- how much Babcock loves his defensively responsible centers. Frederick Gauthier, third line center. Oh, God. Um, if you look at his numbers, I know Evolving Hockey had a bunch of they make these RAPM charts, and man, they're so good. Like they're just unbelievable. His defensive expected goals is like two and a half, almost three standard deviations better than Kadri's. Yep, he's excellent defensively. You know what's funny is he's not that great offensively in terms of when he's on the ice, the team doesn't generate that many shots for. But they rarely give up anything against. And the way I was describing it is it's funny because when you watch Kerfoot play, you don't watch him and go, that's a defensive specialist. That's a Patrice Bergeron. That's a Miko Koivu. That's a Sean Couturier. Right. But he, he prioritizes puck possession in the way that he breaks out, in the way that he kind of dipsy doodles through the neutral zone, in the way that he holds onto the puck in the offensive zone and never shoots. If you look at his shot rates, they're like individually below replacement level, but his passing metrics are like first line level. So and one of the things that I don't think is publicly available, but is definitely tracked privately, is actual time of possession. So a guy like Kerfoot, in all the metrics that are public, it wouldn't show that he's a good possession player because he doesn't take the shots. But I'm willing to bet, and I will ask to see if I can find this out, if you look at his actual time of possession like you were talking about, he probably, when Kerfoot's on the ice, the puck is probably in the offensive zone a lot longer, and they just generate less because he just holds on to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, remember when Pavel Datsuk used to just go to the corner and just fiddle around with the puck for... 35 straight seconds. I don't think we should compare Alex Kerfoot no, to no, Pavel no, no, Datsuk, no. but I know what you're saying. No, it's the no, same no. concept <laughs> yeah. of, and I wrote this in my article. I'm like, puck possession is shot suppression. It's You don't yes. necessarily need to be a defensive stalwart to be playing good, smart defensive hockey. If you have the puck, the other team doesn't. And players like Kerfoot, I think, are really valuable in that regard. But before this becomes too much of a Leafs podcast, let's move on. And not talk about Cody Cece? Can we just talk about Phil Kessel? I don't want to talk about Cody Cece, man. Oh, no, we're talking about Cody Cece, man. Well, I'm shutting off my mic. I'll let you have your two minutes, and then we're going to talk about Phil Kessel because, first of all, I just want to say, like, Connor Brown's going to have an elevated role in Ottawa, and I think he's going to be really good there. If there's one thing Connor Brown's proven, it's that he can inflate his point totals on a team that is not going to win a Stanley Cup. <laughs> But what I'm saying is, I think, mm, a little harsh. He did score the goal that sent the Leafs to the playoffs a couple of years ago. That was one of the more fun moments of my life. That was a good night. That was, was it was a deflection too, right? Uh, Yeah, it was a Jake Gardner shot. Um, But what I was going to say is, I think he'll be in an elevated role there. He'll probably play on the second line and on the first power play unit. It wouldn't surprise me. How does he not get on the first line? Who else is on that team? Uh, Brady Kachuk. Yeah, that's literally the only name I can think of. Bobby Ryan? Bobby Ryan's like on the, on the third line. Jean-Gabriel Pajot? That's your like maybe second line. This should be like uh, some kind of like trivia game. Name Ottawa Senators. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you know their top pairing is going to be Hainsey Zaitsev because I don't know if DJ Smith's going to play Shabbat enough. Um, But anyways, what I was saying, like his elevated role, don't be surprised if he scores 20, 25 goals. And you can't forget 25 that... 25 goals for Connor Brown? Someone has to score. That's not how it works. Man, they're not going <laughs> to score two goals all season. Yeah, but Connor Brown's not going to score 25. So who's going to score? Some guy that you can't even name? I'm just saying that Connor Brown's not going to score 25 goals. I, I, I think I will... he'll score at least 20. All right, let's do an over-under at 22 goals. You, you can take the over on I'll take the over. Oh, wow, okay. I, I will not. Um... Anyway, so I just think he'll get an elevated role. Um, but but you know who is definitely going to get an elevated role? Or maybe not an elevated role because he'll have less time than he did in Ottawa, but he'll get more time than Ian would care for. And that Cody Cece. Ian, tell me how, what your reaction will be when Cody Cece plays 23 minutes a night. 
when Travis Dermott comes back from injury and he remains on the third pairing and Cody Ceci's playing in the top four, I'm going to be very happy. It's going to be a great time. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a smooth, controlled zone exit out of this conversation, which is something that uh, Cody Ceci isn't able to do. So I, I cannot wait for our group chat with Mikey Stevens because you're just going to be sending the we're just going to vent. And it's going to be so funny. I, I can't The day wait. after he was traded, the day after he was traded, I had to talk to him on the phone. I was, I was helping out J.D. Bunkus on Sportsnet Radio. Oh, my God. I and I, I was like, what do I say to him? Like, I don't want to be mean to him because, like, he's not a bad guy. He's, he's, you know, he's trying to make a living for himself. And I, I, I root for him. I want him to do well. Do you think that, like, the Toronto development staff could do kind of what they did with Nikita Zaitsev? No, no, no. I would like to point out that when <laughs> Travis Dermott was drafted, his skating was a weakness, and I think we can both agree that it is very not a weakness anymore. I'm just going to point out, the last time they got a 25-year-old right-handed defenseman who couldn't move the puck and played in the top four, it went fantastically well, so I, I'm sure it's going to work out well this time. That's fair, but do you think like potentially some of that's DJ Smith and maybe Dave Haxall has a different mindset? If Dave Haxall's taught us anything, it's that he values young puck-moving defensemen and doesn't overplay bad guys in the top four like Robert Hag or Andrew McDonald. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to Haxall valuing the right kind of defenseman and Mike Babcock playing Travis Dermott up in the lineup because those are all things that we have a long history of knowing that they happen. Yep. Next topic, man. This frustrates me. Please. I, w- I want some positivity in my life. Ugh. And it's, you know what's funny about the CC situation is that the Leafs could have gone to arbitration with him and tried to get out from underneath the contract, or they didn't need to pay him $4.5 million. They could have paid him $4.3 million instead, which was the qualifying offer. So they're overpaying this guy by 200000 for no reason. They didn't even try to go to arbitration with him. I don't understand this at all. It's frustrating. Let's move on. <laughs> Ian is upset, everyone. Ian is very upset. I did get a warning about this. It says here in our notes for the podcast, it says Ian yells about Cody Cece for two minutes. I'm like, all right. (laughs) It literally says that. (laughs) Okay, so are you going to yell about how Phil Kessel was traded for Galchenyuk? No, because it's weird with Phil Kessel at this point, because... You know what's funny is for the longest time, I think Phil Kessel was underrated, and people said that he was this huge defensive liability, but... He was a, literally a top 10 point scorer in the NHL, and it was kind of like Patrick Kane. And he's played like a nine straight seasons without and that's an the thing. So when you are that dominant of a scorer and you have that positive of an impact on a power play, you know, I, I tend to think the pros outweigh the cons. But I feel like perception has, reality has finally caught up with perception in that when you look at his value at five on five, even though he's generating a lot of offense— he basically gives it all back defensively. He gives up so much when he's on the ice to the point where I'm not sure how valuable he is. And how many points did he score last year? Because he's one of the most confusing players in the league to evaluate. Kind of reminds me of Tyson Berry in that if you if you give up so much defensively, but Phil Kessel had 82 points last year and 92 points the year before, at what point are you positive value? At what point are you negative value? How do you evaluate Phil Kessel? Because... I feel like on a team, like, he's going to Arizona, correct? Yeah, I I just want, even if it's only for, like, two games, I really want to see Clayton Keller and him play together, whether it's on, like, the power play or whatever, because Clayton Keller will be able to get him the puck, and he'll just snap it. I just want to see that for, like, one or two games, and I don't think Kessler should be on the top line, like, after that. But I feel like it'd be so entertaining to watch Keller just rifle a pass, and then Kessler just rip it, like, short side bar down and this is the thing with with teams like Arizona or I think uh, Carolina is another great example because Carolina five on five is excellent their struggle has always been their power play they need that high-end talent on guys who can finish and guys who can really help orchestrate a power play they've never had that Arizona's never had that so that's why I think it kind of makes sense acquiring a Phil Kessel even though he's a defensive liability even though you know he's not going to back check and that contract's just going to look worse and worse and worse you have a chance where maybe now you can have an above-average power play for the first time in, what, the last five years? So I understand it from their perspective. Uh, Pittsburgh gets, it's, what's funny, is a similar player back in Alex Galchenyuk, a player who is very good offensively, very poor defensively. But I also think he hasn't played, I think he's better suited for the wing. It's a tough one. What if you're playing him in sheltered third-line minutes at, uh, at center? Mm. I might like him in that case. I don't know. I mean... Yeah, 
but it depends what you would what are you acquiring him for and what like what are you expecting if you're expecting him to produce offense then you can't play him in the third line center you have to play him riding shotgun with one of 87 or 71 you can do a third line like sheltered offensive zone starts and then Crosby and Malkin take more of the D zone starts no but what I'm saying is if you're expecting offense out of him then he plays in the wing role in the top six but if you just want like him to play in those sheltered minutes where he's playing with lower quality teammates against lower quality competition and probably has a chance to rely on his skill and, and thrive a little bit then okay that's fine but you can't be expecting the same output as if you were playing with Crosby and Malkin. I think I might play him at third line center. I think I might. But you know what's funny is this this trade kind of makes sense for both teams. Yeah. I, I, it's it's always boring when you're like, oh, you know what? Good trade for both teams. But Pittsburgh, I guess, deemed that they couldn't afford Phil Kessel at that price anymore. And considering how bad he was at 5-on-5 five five and the fact that you probably don't need him to have a stellar power play, I understand moving on from him. Arizona needs someone who can help, you know, infuse some talent into their power play. That's Phil Kessel. So I hope it works out for both teams. I sense that it might help Arizona a bit more just because of how much they needed some star talent, some some offensive firepower on that power play. But by the way, when it comes to the Leafs, uh, Zaitsev for CC trade, I just wanted to quickly say that Zaitsev for five years is obviously worse than CC for one year. And I understand that. But I think the Leafs had an opportunity to have CC for zero years. And I don't think they, they tried hard enough to make that a reality. So Ian would have rather just fired Zaitsev over to Ottawa for nothing in return. That would have been better, in my opinion. I'd rather have a replacement-level defenseman than Cody Cece because at least I can trust my coaching staff to play Martin Marincin on the third pairing. I can't trust them to play Cody Cece on the third pairing. Well, that's like someone someone suggested to me that, that the Leafs should bring Hainsey back, and I just said, like, listen, Hainsey in the third pair, good idea. I can't trust that he's going to actually play on the third pair, though, and that's what I'm afraid of if I'm a Leaf fan. You know what I mean? That was more my problem with re-signing Cody Cece and making an effort to re-sign him and not just letting him sign his qualifying offer for $4.3 million. But now we're getting to the CBA, and we were trying to avoid Cody Cece, and I went back to him. So let's talk about the Eric Holla trade. Yeah, what happened there? How much better is JT Miller than Eric Holla? Because he's obviously better, but how much better is he? Oh, I don't know if he's better. Okay, I think he's better. I think JT Miller is a solid, would you say second-line winger? Or would you yeah. say first-line winger? No. Second-line winger for JT Miller. I'm going to call Eric Holla a middle six winger, because I'm not sure if he's a second-line winger, but I'm pretty sure he's better than a third-line winger. I think he's winger. better offensively, so he's, though. He's like a... 2.5 lines line winger in Eric Halla. Vancouver had to give up a first round pick to acquire JT Miller. The Carolina Hurricanes gave up Nicholas Roy and a fifth round pick. Is Nicholas Roy anything? Because he was awesome for me in NHL 14, but I, I'm not sure if he's if he's really panned out for. for he's anything. a big hulking center, and um, I he doesn't really move all that well from what I can remember. Um, I think for me, this was more about um, Vegas shedding a little bit more salary. I guess it just goes to show that you can acquire a, a middle six winger to help you out offensively without giving up a first-round pick. So, For any Canucks fans listening, apparently it is possible. Is it, though? Are you sure? I don't know. See, I'm, I'm a Leafs fan, and they gave up a, a first-round pick to move Patrick Marlowe, and then with all that cap space, they signed Cody Cece for $4.5 million. So I'm oh my stoked. Man. Sorry, sorry. I just think, like... <laughs> Moratorium on that word. I'm not allowed to use it anymore. We're just banning Cece from the podcast. <laughs> We're banning Cece. I'm muting that word. <laughs> I think with Hala, it's more of a, a cap deal than anything, because that return is just... It's just not good enough for me. Like... I have seen both of those players play, and I don't really care about your fifth-round pick valuation. Um, I think it comes down more to leverage, though. Everyone knew that Vegas had to move those contracts. So, I mean, it's it's kind of like the Carlson yeah. trade. It's like, well, everyone knew you had to trade him, so you can't really get much for him. That smells like a Tulski shark was circling, and, and that was the result. And I think it was solid for Carolina. Yeah. Are there any other trades that we need to discuss? I'm, I'm not sure if there's anything major that happened other than the ones we talked about. No, I feel like we kind of covered it because we talked about the Dahan trade earlier. All right, should we talk about Kevin LeBanc's agent? Oh my god! And how he's probably going to be looking for 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 some new work soon, or at least honestly, when you texted me, have you seen LeBanc's contract? 
and then you told me what it was, I was walking home from the subway and I thought you were joking. Like, I actually thought Ian was playing a prank on me. Well, I think you thought the same thing when I told you the Okiharu deal. No, but when you texted me, you I think you said you said how you gave me his point totals. And like I had I know what kind of player Kevin LeBanc is, but you said, how much do you think that player would sign for? And I, I think I said something like three, five or something like that. And that's about accurate. I think that's what Evolving Wild had Matt three years, three point five million. That was the projection. And then you said one by one. And I just stopped in my tracks. The guy behind me bumped into me because I was like, there's you're joking. There's no way. So I think like my theory on this, and I know a couple other people have this theory too. The only way that this is a thing is there's a contract in the top drawer that basically gets signed. I think the date, the deadline's like sometime in January, it might be January 1st. But even then, like, that's not good. It's a great team friendly deal, like great for San Jose, but like, really? $1 million? You're telling me that Kevin LeBanc, who got more points than Kevin Hayes, is worth $1 million? <laughs> All right, we're going to play a game right now, and it's called Did You Sign for More Money Than Kevin LeBanc? Oh, dear. Okay. So, July 1st, Eunice Corposalo, $1.15 million. I mean, he's young, but okay. Colin Wilson in Colorado, one year, $2.6 million. Oh, dear. I might prefer LeBanc. Uh, I would prefer LeBanc. Ron Hainsey, one year, $3.5 million in Ottawa. He's making three and a half times what... Uh, what good old LeBanc's making. By the way, LeBanc, for people who don't know, 56-point season this year, 40-point season the year before, 23 years old. Like These are the kind of guys who get some money, and he signed a one-year, $1 million contract. Made no sense. To be, Ian, had you known that he was going to sign for this, if you're another team, let's say you're Ottawa, right? You need some top six. for You need all the help you can get, to be fair. Or Edmonton, he's a winger. Would you not have offersheeted him for two and a half or three million knowing that San Jose probably wouldn't match it? And you all you have to give up, give up as a second round pick. Here's the funny thing. I think Kevin LeBanc's a bit overrated by his point totals, but now he's not because now he's making like one million. That's ridiculous. Josh Levo, one year, 1.5 million. My boy. What else have we got here? We've got some good ones. Anthony Duclair, 1.65 million. Roman Polak, 1.75 million. It, that's what I'm saying. There has to be some type of agreement for when they have space next year that they sign him to. But he's under no obligation to sign that. You and I were talking about this. He's not under obligation to sign that. And what if he gets hurt this year? It, it rarely happens with NHL players where they get career-ending injuries, and that's why I always tell stars to bet on themselves. I, I'd like to see them take shorter-term contracts. But in a situation like LeBanks, this is your opportunity to get at least some kind of payday, and you're, you're taking a one-year bet on yourself for $1 million? That doesn't make sense. A one-year bet on yourself for $2 million or $2.5 million, I'd understand that, but one-year $1 million, that's like what people sign for off of PTOs. That makes no sense. Yeah, it, I just... I thought you were joking, honestly, when you said that. But there's, For me, <clears throat> I look at it from the fact that if there is no other contract, that's a fireable offense. But there has to be, right? That's the only way. There has to be. I, I don't see how it would get signed otherwise. But I don't think he signs it because at the end of the day, we talked about this where Marner's concerned. You have to sign it as the player. Like your agent can negotiate it, but you can say no at the end of the day. This is not enough, right? So he's clearly on board with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is what's going on because if he signed this without something like that, I mean, then I've got a litany more questions about sort of how he thinks of his value, how his agent values him is a would be a little bit more concerning to me. Because for me, like one by one, when you look at some of the players that were getting a, more than that, that's, I would offer sheet. If you would have offer sheeted him at two and a half times that amount, I would not have blinked twice. It's funny because now I feel like I'm arguing on behalf of Kevin LeBanc and I never thought I would be because I, th I thought that he was going to be one of those players who is kind of empty calorie points, isn't driving play that well, but one year, one million, man. Weird. It's weird. I hope. I hope there's some kind of side deal going on there, because otherwise, this is just confusing. Would be different. Like if if he had thirty points and it was one year, one million, then you could say, okay, like empty calorie points, one year, one million, not bad. You don't accidentally fall into fifty six points. I mean, you do when you're playing with Joe Thornton. Mm, I still don't think it's an accident. 
I don't know. I, I feel like 55 goals went off of Jonathan Chichu's ass and in. So. <laughs> <laughs> was he out of the league like three years after that? Yeah, well, he also went to Ottawa, I think. That's what did it. And that was when they started to sort of like really fall off the wagon. How many goals do you think he scored for Ottawa? Since we're saying that Connor Brown's going to score 25. He played 61 games for the Ottawa Senators in 2009-10. Seven. He scored five. Yeah. So. Oh dear. <laughs> wow. All right. I don't think Connor Brown's getting twenty-five. Mm, I, he I might get, get. He might. He might get more than five, though. It's, it's quite possible. Oh, if he doesn't get more than five, that's going to be really concerning to me. Because Nikita Zaitsev get more than five. <laughs> no. No. Points. No, no, yes. No, no. I think he, Nikita Zaitsev probably gets fifteen or twenty. Probably points. gets power play time, right? Well, okay. You you've got to think that Shabbat runs the top. PP. Yeah, 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 I'm thinking PP too. Or maybe they run three, uh, sorry, two D on the power play. Or and walk with me on this one. You just give Eric Brandstrom a shot. Oh, I love Eric Brandstrom so He's much. So good. You know how much I love Eric Brandstrom. Yep, this is an Eric Brandstrom fan club on this podcast. Yeah, I'm trying to decide who loves Eric Brandstrom more. I had him in my top ten in his draft year. So did I. I think hey. I had him like eight. Yeah, I want to say I had him eighth or ninth. Yeah, I, I, I thought I might have been crazy, so I was looking. I was looking at other people's lists, and like Bob McKenzie having it like twenty ninth. I'm, what am I missing here? This guy's a dynamic skater. He's awesome. I love him, and he seems to have developed really well. So I, I feel like I got that one right. There are other ones that I have definitely not got right in the past, but I, I feel pretty like good who? about that one. Who have I been really wrong on? Um, I mean, where this is going way back. Uh, I thought Angelo Esposito was going to be a superstar. Oh dear, that did not pan out. Old takes exposed. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a bunch. I, I, this is another podcast for another day, but just the players we, we could, were most we wrong about. We could definitely talk about this. Yeah, yeah th- that's an off-season topic. You know what I mean? We, in a week or two, and we're running out of things to talk about. Old takes exposed. What are your top ten worst takes? Ooh. I feel like that's a good one. I liked the David Clarkson's tr- uh, signing when it happened. Ian! I-, I learned about hockey analytics like within a year afterwards and, and got apparently I got really into it. But, but before that, I was very much uh, uh, the like hockey dad Twitter of takes. Oh, God, that's so good. And now you're like the pendulum is the other way. So you were you were the guy that was yelling about how Jake Gardner was bad and all this other nonsense. I saw his course. He was high. I'm like, well, this is clearly a bad stack because he's bad and Phaneuf is good. And uh, and then what happened? That's like the... <laughs> I love it when people tweet that. Like they quote tweet something and then and then what happened? Like when Eric Tulski quote tweeted someone about how the Hurricanes were clearly inflating their shot totals, blah, 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 blah. And then, and then what happened? So I tweeted that that guy that said Kawhi Leonard will not play for the Raptors. And the night they won, I literally quote tweeted with, and then what happened? And everyone was like, oh. Rachel, Rachel. And then what happened? Ouch. It's painful. It's painful. It's early. I wish him the best in LA. Uh, Patrick Beverly is one of my favorite players in the NBA. Okay, before we get into basketball, (sighs) what is the biggest difference between playing center and playing wing? And I know you were a goalie, but I played... Actually, to be fair, center winger and defense. I, I played left wing and right wing. I'm a, I'm a right-handed shot. I preferred playing left wing, but yeah. Oh, so you would not have played on Mike Babcock's teams then? I don't know. He plays Zach Hyman on his offside. But he also loves Zach Hyman. Yeah. Does he play anyone else on their offside? I don't think so. Like, that's basically it. Or Connor Brown for some reason. But... Well, because he won't play Capitan on his offside. Uh, biggest difference between center and wing, I'd say it's basically how involved you are with the play. And it's funny, in the modern day, I feel like F1, F2, F3 is is more how we do positions than yeah. you know, left wing, center, right wing. And, and that means the first player in on the forecheck is F1. The second player in on the forecheck is F2. Third forward in, you're like the de facto center in that you're going to be the first man back. If the first one in the defensive zone, you're the center until you know someone covers for you. And so I feel like nowadays compared to maybe 10 15 20 years ago positions at the forward position uh, like positions when it comes to left wing center right wing i don't think they're as important as they used to be and i know that centers get paid drastically more than wingers i don't know i'd make an argument that maybe that that gap is shrinking and that being a center right now isn't necessarily as important as it used to be but you are more involved with the play when it comes to defensively being near it uh you're a big part of transition 
offensively, you're, you're supposed to be more of a playmaker than a shooter. But then again, there are players like Steven Stamkos and Austin Matthews who are sh- shoot first and they find a way to make it work. But I think it really comes down to how involved you are with the play. But again, I'd make the argument that it's not as, as drastic of a difference as it was 15, 20 years ago. Fair enough. Yeah, I think like with the obvious other than taking face-offs, but we're seeing more and more now that you you don't necessarily have to be a center to take a face-off. Or you don't need to be good at it. McDavid, Malkin, McKinnon, they're all terrible at face-offs. Yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be good at it. But then there's guys like Bergeron who are good and good at it. Um, That's a bonus. So they're good at center and good at taking face-offs. But I think with center, there's a, just so much more responsibility that goes into being a center. And I would agree with you. I like the F1, F2, F3. But for purposes of being like when you're in the defensive zone and you're in coverage – as the center, if you're the one that screws up and you're not down low, ain't no one else getting yelled at at the bench. You, as the center, are getting yelled at at the bench, right? You got to be down low. You got to be supporting the puck basically all around the ice, right? So if your winger has the puck in the offensive zone, you got to be the low support. If your defenseman has the puck, you got to be sort of up above the circle so that you can track. And in the defensive zone, you got to be the one that's sort of watching the front of the net when the D goes into the corner and supporting them. There's just the reason why centers get paid more. And Justin Bourne had a great article about this. They just have more responsibility because at the end of the day, it falls on them defensively at least like at least from that perspective. But what about the centers who aren't defensively responsible and often have wingers coming back for them as F3? Yeah, but aren't those, like you could make the argument that McDavid isn't the best defensive center, but when he's scoring 120 points per season, I think the good outweighs the bad, and I think you'll agree with me there. Also, as a side note on faceoffs, what percentage of his faceoffs do you think Evgeny Kuznetsov won last year? Oh, what? Probably like 43 percent. 38.7 percent. I didn't know that was possible. Okay, but I also can I just. I'm going to have a bit of a, I have a bit of a bone to pick. And that face-offs are super overrated at five on five? Oh no, I'm not even going down that road. The people who take the actual NHL stats for the website, half of them aren't even paying attention half the time. Like I remember when I was in New Jersey, I was counting shots and we had five less shots accounted for on the scoreboard than I had counted. And I am very sticky about when I award a shot and these guys just were outright missing them but we somehow had six blocked shots in a period and I counted two I'm like what like what is going on here I mean I know Madison Square Garden is notorious for being bad with those oh face-off stats they mark it as whoever basically touched the puck first not who retained possession I was gonna say for shot stats but really any of the scorekeeping stuff Madison Square Gardens notoriously for any buddy the Islanders are also really bad for it I don't know what's going on in New York man no but I'm just saying like in general especially when it comes to faceoffs I take that with a grain of salt that's why when I um was working in New Jersey like we didn't use that we used our own in-house stuff or like stuff that we had outsourced because I would rather the algorithm track who got possession or I could track it with my own eyes. That way I know we're tracking it to like what our team standard is because it's just, it's far too inconsistent. All right. Uh, uh, important question here. Very crucial. Let me pull it up here. I had it saved. Oh, this is for me. Would I trade a lifetime ban of kale chips for the Leafs winning a cup next year? And uh, that's, that's just a, an offer that I, I can't take. Kale chips are like unprotected first round picks. You just, you can't give them up. Unless it's for a super duper star, and and kale chips are the meaning of life. So that's it's what got me through the Alexander Kerfoot article. Those things that you were e- hold on, those things that you were eating last night were not even kale chips. That was just damn kale. No man, those are not it was chips. I put I put spray, sprinkled some olive oil on there, some some sea salt, and uh, put them in the oven. Did you hear the crunch? Regular kale doesn't crunch. First of all, no, I did not hear the crunch because I don't listen to you eat kale chips, Ian. It's in the tweet, man. (laughs) No, no. The best was I came back to my phone. So like I was busy working. I come back to my phone. I have like 40 Twitter notifications. I'm like, what is going on? And I see it's you, your silly kale chips. Oh, yeah. I tagged you in it. Blowing up my mentions. (laughs) I'm like, you know, I'm at work and not looking at my phone. And this is what you do to me. 
I mean, I don't feel bad. <laughs> I feel zero remorse. I know you don't feel bad. I mean, let's be real. Would you rather eat kale chips five times a week or McDonald's french fries five times a week? Oh my god, are you serious? I would eat McDonald's french fries every damn day. That's my point. You're going to die in like five years. So. Wow, that's so mean. <laughs> you need to look out for your body. You got to feed it some, some good kale. You got you to gotta give your body the good stuff. I did have a kale smoothie today, I won't lie. This is it's funny. I remember when you were sick the other day uh, at Puck Talks. You you had some kind of smoothie. You're like Ian. I'm drinking kale, and I'm like, wow, what a hypocrite. You, I'm shocked you didn't take a picture of me and post it all over Twitter because I literally showed up to Puck Talks. Who said? It? Mike said it to me. He's like, you look awful. I'm like, thanks. I feel awful, <laughs> and I'm drinking this Ian smoothie. I think it had like kale, peanut butter, um, spinach. I don't even. It was disgusting. But I drank it, and I felt better. The peanut butter doesn't make much sense in there. But all right, before we get out of here, is there anything else? Anything else we need to to touch on? I feel like we we got Kale Makar out of the way there. So anything else? No, I think we're good. We'll uh, might be back next week. We might take a week off. Haven't decided yet. We'll see what happens. Maybe we'll do an old takes exposed. I still think that's a great idea for a podcast. <laughs> Dig up some old tweets. I mean, I won't lie. Summertime, and I'm prepping for season at the new job. So, oh yeah, uh, someone did ask, "How's your new job going? How what what are you doing with uh, with York?" It's uh, it's going well. I mean, it's it's hectic trying to get like everything figured out. I've I got a lot more interest in terms of like people that want to like work for me or like be my interns. So that's good. Um, there's a running joke right now. There's like so many people that are interested that the the hockey coach is like, you can just have someone go get you McDonald's every game. I'm like, yes. Wow. Yes. Eat better, Rachel. It's funny. I don't even eat that well, but I'm worried about you now. No, I've actually been. I had tacos the other night. It was very good. Um, but the job's going well. I mean, it's it's busy because we got to get everything kind of up and running because training camp's like September second, and I get back from Mexico August thirtieth. So I gotta basically have everything ready to go like for the second last week of August. Um, but I'm really enjoying it. So. Definitely can't uh, can't complain, and I mean they let me go home, they let me sleep, and so I mean realistically doesn't uh, there's no complaints on my end. I'm really really enjoying it. That sounds awesome, Rachel. And yeah, I'm tr- I'm trying to really dive into my stuff at the athletic lately. Try to ramp and stuff up. I know that a lot of people take the summers off, but I-, I feel like this is actually a good opportunity to do some deep dives on stuff that people might actually click on. So I did the. Tyson Berry deep dive. I have the Alex Kerfoot deep dive that probably just came out by the time you're listening to this. And I was joking with you before we started. I think I might need to write a devil's advocate, Cody CC, like a positive take on Cody CC and try super hard to argue on behalf of it just so I can help myself sleep at night. But I, it's, it's going to be a really difficult one to, to argue, but I think that's going to be my next piece. We'll see. All righty. That's gonna. It's, it's funny. It's gonna take me like the longest to write that I've ever written in my life, and it's it's barely gonna be like five hundred words. It's gonna <laughs> take me like a week to come up. I'm with gonna that. have to provide like emotional support. I already know. I was gonna say I'll text you. I'll need some kale chips to get me through it. Oh, <laughs> All right, that's us for this week. We'll see you next week for if we do record. I'm thinking old takes exposed. If nothing major happens, that's that's a good podcast idea. All right, take care, everyone. All right, have a good week, Rachel. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>